0: Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. So, how are you doing? Did you keep your resolutions? Did you make it through dry January? Has the new you you were striving for appeared? I want to hear how it's going. And if you happen to be one of the successful women who've stuck to your guns, Please share how you're doing it. After today's show, hop on over to the What She Said Facebook page and share with others. But first, here's what's coming up on today's show Black History Month begins in a few days, and with that, we know there will be a rush to book interviews and keynotes with Black leaders across Canada on a variety of topics. Knowing this, we also know there needs to be an awareness when we are portraying and sharing Black history and stories. Salam Debs is an anti-racism educator and anti-oppression coach. She joins me today with some advice for organizations and institutions as we head into February so that coverage is ethical instead of performative. Life for women in 2023 is chaotic. Between work and home, our mental and physical health, plus the never-ending barrage of information we must wade through, it can often feel like we're not moving ahead, and it can and does affect our productivity. Thankfully, we now have an app for that. Sandra Veladar is the founder behind I Live, a life productivity app that comes paired with program and mindset training. Intended to empower women to live a balanced and fulfilling life, Sandra joins me to share how you can use this app to find that elusive work-life balance. Anne Brody pops in with entertainment and this week we take a look at Malcolm is Missing, a chilling documentary about a missing Port Hope man who failed to return from his annual trip to Mexico in 2018. A cautionary tale for anyone looking to book a trip south this year, this documentary highlights the fact that 100,000 people go missing in Mexico every year and 95% of violent crimes are never solved. We also chat about the humorous and deeply uncomfortable you people starring Eddie Murphy, Jonah Hill and Julia Louis-Dreyfus on Netflix and the funny shotgun wedding starring two incredible Jennifers, J-Lo and Belle of the Ball this year, Jennifer Coolidge. As the housing crisis worsens, many are looking at ways to alleviate the burden and that includes multi-generational living. Kate Choi, an Associate Professor of the Department of Sociology at Western University, joins me to share her insights on this growing trend that has benefits for kids living with grandparents, how it helps single-parent households, plus a few of the downsides of this arrangement. Finally, the one and only Amber Mac joins me to discuss artificial intelligence and how it's creating a critical skills gap in our country. We also discuss how prepared Canada is for this new reality, what employment will look like for us in the future, and how we should be preparing ourselves for the AI revolution. It's another full week at what she said with interviews that empower, educate, and entertain. So let's jump in right now on 1059 The Region. Black History Month begins in a few days, and this year's theme is February and Forever, celebrating Black History Today and every day, which of course we should be celebrating year-round, but as with our Indigenous communities, the media tends to only focus on Black history and elevate Black voices during the month of February when everybody rushes to fill their editorial calendar. Salam Debs is a Black Ethiopian mother, an anti-racism educator, anti-oppression coach, singer, writer, yoga and meditation teacher, and holistic life coach. Her work focuses on addressing how racism and white supremacy operate within feminism, gender equity, organizations, wellness spaces, and our communities. She joins me now with some advice for white majority organizations and institutions as we head into February. Welcome to the show, Salam. Thank you, Candace. So you recently posted something on Instagram, which caught my eye. And you talk about the importance of organizations being ethical rather than performative during Black History Month. So can you expand on that a bit for
1: me? Absolutely. I think, you know... Every time around this time of year, organizations reach out to Black educators and creatives and speakers and activists to speak within their organizations and institutions, but often don't think about all of the impacts. So, for example, organizations will reach out very late to creatives and educators and ask them to come in, not recognizing how busy they often are and often do not pay Black people for their labor and and for the work and offering that they're bringing into their spaces. And so it creates this kind of this effect of a lot of harm often during these times.
0: And one of the things that struck me was you said, you know, it's not Black History Month is not synonymous with trauma and suffering. There's more to it. And really, I had to pause because I thought, yeah, we really do focus on that a lot.
1: So what's a better way to approach these stories? Well, the reality is that, you know, the enslavement of black people, which, you know, happened for over 250 years here in Canada, as well as segregation, which happened here in Canada, and all of the harms and violence of anti-black racism actually interrupted black history, black people of the diaspora across the globe from the continent of Africa you know, have histories that are incredibly rich, that have nothing to do with oppression and have nothing to do with, you know, the the systems of colonialism and white supremacy. And so I always say that it's important for us to recognize that we do need to be re-educated on the real history of, you know, Black people who have been here since the 1600s here in Canada. And we also need to focus on Black joy. Black joy is our culture. It is our foods. It is the ways in which we are in community. And it's, it's, it's a revolutionary act when we do so.
0: And Black History Month is, well, I mean, obviously we're in Canada, we're going to focus on Canadian history, but it's not just in Canada.
1: Yes, black people, you know, there's over 54 countries in the continent of Africa, there are, you know, over 20 countries throughout the Caribbean and across the globe. So it is black people of the diaspora across the globe. And it's recognizing that black history is Canadian history, and and Black people are not a monolith. We are very diverse in in terms of our cultures and our experiences, and so there needs to be this kind of holistic understanding of Black people, not only from the place of oppression, but also from the ways in which we celebrate all of the contributions Black people have brought into the world, not to mention the fact that, you know, Africa and and Black people are, you know, the cradle of civilization, so there's also that. So
0: Martin Luther King Day just went by and we saw the typical Martin Luther King quotes being shared by people in particular who should not be sharing his message, but it's often done with a quick Google search and then put out without any thought behind it. Could you share your thoughts on a better way
1: to approach this? You know, what happens with Martin Luther King and and his le- legacy is that there's you know revisionist understanding of history of Martin Luther King the reality is Dr King was a radical he was revolutionary and he was assassinated you know for the radical work that he was doing he actually was very much hated by the majority of white people at that time even though he's revered you know in this day and age and so it's important for us not to whitewash Dr. King's message because Dr. King wasn't just about love and rainbows and bringing people together in Kumbaya, but he also was very critical of white progressives and those who were not willing to do the work that was necessary to provide liberation and freedom and collaborate in liberation and freedom for Black people.
0: And I'm sure if he saw some of the people sharing his quotes, he would have strong opinions. I do follow his daughter on Twitter. And I know she is constantly calling out people who do that without thought behind what they're doing. I want to go back to what you were saying, though, about slavery and oppression in Canada. I think this is something that's being ripped down for people who may have a perceived history of our country. So can you focus on that a little bit and sort of expand on that?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I always say that there, you know, Canada has an incredible PR, you know, PR kinds of image of what so called Canada is when the reality is, you know black people were enslaved in canada for over 250 years and instead what we're taught in schools is that you know canada's responsible for the underground underground railroad and you know saving black people but actually historically black people fled these lands to go back to the US or go to the US because of it was even harsher environments here in Canada. And you know, stories like enslaved black women like Marie Joseph Angelique and many different experiences and voices that have been erased is a form of harm and violence. And so until we learn the real history of How Canada is actually not better than the US, but actually has the same history as the US in terms of enslavement and segregation, that we won't actually be able to address anti Black racism in a real way.
0: Yeah, because if we're walking around thinking we didn't do this, you know, and when the reality is quite different, we're not actually going to change much. So we do need to talk about that. Any recommendations for maybe? people we should be listening to following this month to really sort of
1: learn and unlearn at the same time. Mhm. There's so many authors out there. There's so many incredible authors. I think, you know, I think about some of the Black Canadian authors that have written books about policing, you know, Black Canadian authors that have written about the harms of anti-Black racism in Canada. I think about books like so you want to talk about race you know, by Ajama I, I Olu. I also think about how can you seek out black activists and educators in your community, right? So people in your community, that are already doing the work, that are already teaching and educating and amplifying, you know, community work and amplifying, you know, revolutionary work that's happening here in Canada, because so often there's a focus on, on people in, in the U.S.,
0: And I think social media, just if I might jump in, is such a great place as well, because I follow a lot of black creators, indigenous creators, you know, and this helps me really understand when I follow those people on social media and just listen to what's being said, as opposed to jumping in with my opinion every two seconds. So I would say social media is a great place to start. You also have an anti-racism course. I want people to be able to find that because you're doing incredible work and you're always sharing on social media. So maybe you could share some information on that and where people can follow you.
1: Yes. So the anti-racism course is some uh, two cohorts that I offer throughout uh, every year. And so... You can find the information on salamdebs.com. And there we have a wait list. We'll have some workshops that are going to be happening in February and March that will lead up to the next cohort for the anti-racism course. So if you go to that site as well, to my Instagram, salamdebs.com or SalamDebs, I should say, and then you'll get information there as well.
0: Okay, we're going to have you back on the show because we're going to continue this conversation outside of February. We're going to be rebels. (laughs) We're going to keep going with this conversation. So, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Life for women in 2023 is chaotic. Between work and home, our mental and physical health, plus the never-ending barrage of information we must wade through, it can often feel like we're not moving ahead, and it can and does affect our productivity. Thankfully, there is now an app for that iLive is a life productivity app that comes paired with program and mindset training. Intended to empower women to live a balanced and fulfilling life, this app-based program holistically addresses all aspects of life, not just work, and is doable in 5 to 15 minutes a day, making it achievable for busy women everywhere. Joining me now to share how it all comes together is Sandra Validar, founder and CEO of iLive. Welcome to What She Said, Sandra.
3: Oh, thank you so much, Candace. I'm so happy to be here.
0: So I think a lot of women dream about an app that would cover it all. Yes. So uh, sure. let's jump into it. Tell me all about it.
3: Perfect. So inspired by my own personal journey, so I could very much relate to the experiences or thoughts people are having, and then leveraging all my experience as a business transformation and digital professional, we have created a life productivity app, just like you said, where we encourage women to create and track realistic daily plans, which help avoid burnout and guilt. And unlike calendars and to-do lists, we enable women to set these plans against their personal velocity, a quantified measure of daily capacity. That's where we become different, and we're leveraging agile principles that we use in delivery of business value all the time
0: so this is not this is not then, been- an app where you jump in a bunch of to-dos and try to stay on top of them all.
3: No, we actually, <laughs> so no, because that's where, so we work on setting our daily intention and we like to do so in a very realistic way. So we use the age-old principle of jar, rocks, pebbles, and sand, which you might have heard about, uh, where we really look to size our intention on the most Things most important things we're trying to get done, the rocks and pebbles we don't worry about tracking sand but we this is really where we work to be realistic with our planning not just in size but again also across all aspects of your life so not just work <laughs> for having a big dinner party tonight we also probably can't you know do massive like you know marathon and also like a big huge work event we got to be realistic so you
0: focus a lot on life balance then which right. i think is something we all find incredibly elusive Absolutely. so how do you help people then? Because it's got to be more than just the app. So this is partnered with right. mindset training, right?
3: That's right. That's very much so. The app is where we have a daily practice to create these plans, reflect on them, which is also a huge part of this, where the learnings come into play. But it's paired absolutely with a little bit of learnings on the program side, which we look to make really uh, you know, tight and fast for busy professional women, and also mindset training which is a huge aspect of and a huge key to our success. I myself, I have been a student of mindset, which is really what took me down this road of dedicating myself on this path when I got to personally feel how powerful these can be. And we partnered with a psychologist to help us develop some of the mindset training elements of the program. Um, So we say the program takes about five to 15 minutes a day because absolutely it takes effort. And although we say five to 15, we actually realize that that's a lot considering all the stuff that women have going on. But you know, we, we say in a great day, if you give yourself a couple of minutes to set your intention, reflect on the day past and do a quick little learn one per day. It all adds up, and slowly through your practices, you get to live life by your own design. That's the big goal.
0: <laughs> okay. So tell me then, what are the steps? We go to the app store, download yes. the app
3: first. Um, you have to actually register with us directly because we envision. Although the app store, absolutely super proud, is the app is in the Apple store and the Google Play store. We running these running the, as cohorts. So we envision we were really wanting to also get. Communities of women running, completing this together. So the first step would be to register with us. We're running our pilot cohort right now. We're so excited, actually launching today, January 23rd. Jumpstart one, two, three. Um, and we're tra- testing it out. So the women are registering with us. Then you can, and we we'll send you all the information after that. So download the store, register, and you get access to the app, the um, uh, the program, and our our private community channels.
0: So the cohort that you end up in then, you can That's communicate right. with each other back That's and right. forth. So it's a little bit of, yeah, it sounds like a building a community as well.
3: That's right. We're absolutely doing that because we're trying to hit all the best practices of helping women on this journey, which of course, women helping women is super powerful. So we're absolutely baking in community for you know practical tips and trips, tricks and accountability along the way. We, that's why actually in communities right now, we have a pilot cohort, we've hand kind of, select, not selected, but hand recruited the group of women to test this all out with us. But the vision for us is to partner with businesses, so kind of, and businesses, so to enable, you know, kind of pre-form communities to do this together. That's where we're hoping to go next in 2023.
0: All right, incredible. So, let's share with people where's the website? Where can people go?
3: Absolutely. So, to check us out, go to i live That's our main website. Or also follow our journey on Instagram or LinkedIn. So, on Instagram, we have a i live my way, i l i v my way, and on LinkedIn, we're actually called Digital Introspection is our company. You can find us there. So, we'll be sharing lots of information there on our On our journey this year and looking to build new opportunities with partnerships across canada
0: incredible i think this sounds amazing i think a lot of women are looking for that sense of community with other women it's been a lonely few years so i think you're right on time with this sandra so thank you so much for joining me today
3: thank you so much candace
0: Joining us now for Saturday Night at the Movies is Ann Brody. What do you got for us this week, Anne?
4: Well, I'm opening with a cautionary tale that applies to anyone up here who plans to go to Mexico for holidays during the winter. It's a documentary called Malcolm is Missing, uh, and it concerns a man in Port Hope whose daughter started to hunt for him when he didn't come back from his, his home in Mexico. So she followed his uh, bank statements. Her name is Brooke Mullins, by the way. She followed his bank statements, and his account had been diminishing, and she thought it was the girlfriend. So she reached the girlfriend, didn't know where her boyfriend was. A big mystery. Um, She called the police, not interested whatsoever. So Mullins decided to fly down, and she had a couple of allies, her father's driver and a a journalist who insisted on remaining anonymous. So they started to look around. They found lots and lots of hard evidence, including a clear as a bell video of the girlfriend feeding him a drug in his drink when he was looking away. He becomes really wobbly. She takes him out, and he's never seen again. So uh, still, the police won't respond to anything. And uh, his uh, the girl's uh, the girlfriend's family starts to become threatening. So finally, she convinces the police to go and search a couple of fields. They don't find her father, but they do find a lot of bodies of tourists who had just disappeared. Now, this has been a big problem in the news lately. Uh, it seems to be a trend that tourists are being manipulated and. Uh, either, you know, ripped off of their money or their property or killed. So he seems to have fallen into that uh, final category. They haven't found him yet. She's still searching. It's really a rather upsetting situation. Um, Now, the film is, is playing one time only, Sunday night at Hot Docs, Ted Rogers Cinema, and the filmmakers and the daughter and the reporter are going to be there. So this is is something we need to know to be very cautious where we go on vacation, especially post-pandemic when money's tight everywhere. So, you know, it's an important one and it'll be screened more widely later. Okay, let's talk
0: about you people with Jonah Hill, Eddie Murphy, Julia Louis-Dreyfus. This is an all-star cast. It looks funny, but it also looks a little uncomfortable.
4: Oh, it is uncomfortable. It's about the culture wars. So we have Jonah Hill, who is a Jewish fellow who meets a black woman uh, played by Lauren London. And they really fall deeply, deeply in love. You don't see love portrayed this way very often, in rom-coms, but it's sincere and, and real. So, but the problem is, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who plays his mother, can't open her mouth without saying something that she doesn't realize is racist, or at least inflammatory. And Eddie Murphy, who plays uh, Lauren's, um, father is really angry, and he decides to make Jonah's life miserable, and he does it very, very well. It's sad to see someone as angry as this, and but that's the way it is. So, you know, she, they're unable to fix anything, and... It may lead them to the point where they're going to have to break up because they they just can't bear this culture war that's tearing the families apart. And these are real issues. You know, these are real living issues. They say things like, oh, so you're comparing slavery to the Holocaust? It really goes places you don't expect it to go. But it's really worth watching for these culture wars and to heed the warnings about personal integrity and doing what your heart tells you. And
0: where is that on, Anne?
4: That's on Netflix. All right. Excellent. Let's talk about
0: Shotgun Wedding. This looks really fun. And it's also got the bell of the ball right now. Everybody's favorite Jennifer Coolidge in it. So tell me about that one.
4: Oh, yeah. Two Jennifers. Jennifer Coolidge, who is Jennifer Coolidge throughout the film, and Jennifer Lopez, who actually moves out of her comfort zone in this this film uh, to play a bit of an action star. So what happens is she's getting married to Josh Duhamel's character in the South Seas. They have brought the family in and they're having sort of a weird time because he's very hands-on. He's doing the wedding. He's really detail-oriented and he can't enjoy himself because the, the pineapples aren't properly lit. And, and she's getting pretty <laughs> frustrated with it because it's supposed to be a time of joy. Anyway, his parents are difficult. Her parents are difficult. And then gorillas show up and take everybody hostage, except for Jen and Josh, who are out in the jungle. So they they are looking through the binoculars, and they see gorillas chasing some of the party members, and they realize that something's happening. So they they're undercover; they have time to prepare themselves to grab rifles. And Jennifer just leaps into action, like this action hero, leaping, jumping, shooting rifles. Um, it's incredible. <laughs> She must have taken a bit of time to I mean, she has the physicality to do it. But these are new moves. These are like martial arts moves. So it's it's a rom com crime. is what I'm calling this one. And it's kind of fun. And it's perfect for a midwinter confection. All right. And is that on Netflix as well? Did I see? It is on
0: uh, Prime Video. Oh, okay, excellent. Um, we've run out of time. I do want to mention uh, that you have more on what she said talk dot com, including a look at shrinking your boyfriend with my boyfriend in it, Harrison Ford. So um, that's over on what she said talk dot com, and we'll see you next week, Ann.
4: We'll see you next week.
0: Generational housing is not common in Canada, but as the housing affordability crisis grows, it will be something we see more often. As you might suspect, there are pros and cons to this living arrangement. Kate Choi is an associate professor of the Department of Sociology at Western University in London, Ontario. Her research examines the nature, trends and patterns of social inequality. Within this broad topic, she examines how family contexts contribute to the reproduction of social inequality. Her work has been published in several prestigious journals, including Demography, Journal of Marriage and Family, and Social Science and Medicine. She joins me now to discuss multi-generational housing. Welcome to the show, Kate.
5: Hello. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on your show.
0: So I, I came across you on Twitter, actually, and you were having a discussion about this. And as I stated in the intro, unaffordable housing is obviously contributing to the increase in multi-generational living circumstances. But are there other factors? And does this differ by culture and ethnicity?
5: That is a wonderful question, Candice. Indeed, we are seeing large differences in the extent to which individuals who belong to different ethno-racial groups live in multi-generational housing. In Asia and Latin America, as well as in Southern Europe, we know that traditionally people have lived in multi-generational housing for long periods of time. So when immigrants from these regions come into Canada, at times they often replicate the different types of arrangements that they had in their sending communities. It is also the case that we know that uh, there are grandparent visas that have been Made more readily available over the last decade or so. And that, of course, increases the availability of extended kin, particularly aging parents in the Canadian setting, which has also increased the prevalence of multi generational housing.
0: I think what really interested me was seeing that you said there was a direct benefit for children living in the house. Can you expand on that a little bit? Because I think this is something that everybody will be interested in hearing more of.
5: So uh, what we know uh, is that over the last 20 years, housing prices have increased at double the rate of income. And what that means is for large shares of Canadian families, they're really suffering with the housing affordability crisis. And roughly a quarter of all Canadian households are paying over 30% of their pre-tax income on housing. So what ends up happening is that they are experiencing at times housing precarity or they're having to make decisions about where they will actually put their resources. Will they pay their mortgage or delay that for a bit and pay the water bills or medical expenses or educational resources for their particular children? So what a lot of different individuals and households are in fact doing is in order to be able to manage better their finances, in order to reduce the costs associated with housing. And in this era where housing prices and the rent seems to be increasing extremely rapidly, what they're doing is they're doubling up and they're often doubling up with their parents. And so in our uh, study that will be coming in the Journal of Ethnic and Migration Studies, what we found is that multigenerational living, which is living in three-generational households with a grandparent, the parent, and the child, reduces children's exposure to living in an unaffordable household by roughly half. Wow. So that, that increases is quite a bit. Although our, our paper uh, that looks at the protective effects of living in multi-generational households in terms of finances, there's also literature that suggests that living and being taken care of by grandparents is really good for the child in terms of their emotional growth in order to establish a good self-esteem. And and also grandparents are also helping grandchildren with homework. So on average, children who are being uh, raised in addition by grandparents in addition to parents tend to perform better in terms of A variety of educational outcomes as well. So it's clear that kids
0: benefit from this arrangement. Did you look at how this may benefit the seniors, the grandparents themselves in this arrangement?
5: That's a wonderful question. So there's quite a bit of work on how it affects the grandchildren, but there's less work on how it affects the grandparents. And in fact, the evidence is somewhat mixed. And we have evidence to suggest that For some dimensions, it's actually beneficial, and in some other dimensions, it's actually detrimental. So if we think about something like cognitive skills and cognitive impairment, we know that grandparents were taking the primary responsibility of caring for their grandchildren they actually do much better in terms of their cognitive skills, because probably because they're constantly interacting with their grandchildren. They're probably addressing a lot of questions, and we know that children tend to ask a lot of questions. It's also the case that cognitive skills declines at a much slower rate. In terms of physical health, the evidence is somewhat more mixed, and it really depends on the intensity of grandparenting responsibilities. So in cases where grandparents are the primary care provider and care for their grandchildren at much more than the child's parents themselves, it actually has an adverse effect. If it is in fact the case that they're living together and they're sharing the childcare responsibilities more evenly with the parents. It it tends to be beneficial in some ways and, and detrimental in others. In the case of non resident grandparents that regularly take care of their grandchildren, but not every day, there's actually a positive impact. So we actually it's actually really multifaceted and for grandparents it's it's a little bit mixed. So I think this is a good place to point out that as a society, we do need to provide grandparents who are caring for their grandchildren some financial, emotional, and instrumental support so that their act of love, of caring for their grandchildren, does not become a heavy burden that adversely affects their health.
0: Now, I just want to make sure that I understand this. You also looked at how single parents managed within a multi-generational household as well. And what was the impact you found there?
5: So... That's a wonderful question. And the impact of multi generational living in terms of how it affects affordable housing and children's risk of living in such households differs vastly depending on parents' marital status. So because single mothers on average tend to be more socioeconomically disadvantaged than mothers in dual parent families, it's often the case that living with a grandparent or grandparents has immediate beneficial effects because there are much greater risk of living in an unaffordable housing in the absence of the financial support or the housing support that the grandparent actually provides. It's also the case that the impact for single parent families tends to differ across ethno-racial groups. And what we are finding is that white single mothers and their children benefit the most in, in terms of multi-generational living than Black South Asian or East Asian children in Canada, in large part because of two reasons. One is there's a greater cultural emphasis, as you indicated earlier, for independent living among white Canadians than there is among Asian individuals, for example. And as a result, white single mothers don't move in until their financial situation is very dire. So immediately when they move in, that reduces their risk of living in unaffordable housing. Um, But in Asian families, there has been a historical continuity and a cultural emphasis on living together. So when they're moving in together, their circumstances are not as Dire, so it reduces it less, and it has multi-generational living has has less of a protective effect. It's also the case that there are systemic and barriers to wealth accumulation among racial minority individuals, and as a result, white grandparents, on average, tend to have more wealth um, than racialized populations grandparents in racialized populations. And as a result, they can transfer more resources to white single mothers and their children. And as a result, it's often the case that for single parent families, white single mothers benefit the most by living in these multi-generational households than do their peers in racialized populations.
0: Kate, this is such a fascinating topic to me, and I think it's something that's just going to become bigger and bigger over the next few years. Uh, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. I think people are going to be keenly interested in this as everybody's looking for affordable housing and how they're going to manage with current circumstances. I do want people to be able to find you, though, and keep up and find out more. So where can they do that?
5: So we ha- we have published a conversation article uh, based on the academic literature. So can find me in the conversation. It's also the case that the academic work will also be available in the Journal of Ethnic and Migration Studies. And also, I like to discuss this issue quite a bit, as well as housing affordability issues at Twitter. So you can also find me at Twitter.
0: Okay, we're going to put all of that in the liner notes then when it goes out on podcast. Kate, thanks so much for joining me today. It
5: was a pleasure to be on your show. Oh
0: We've been talking about artificial intelligence a lot this month on What She Said. We've heard how it may impact writers, and we've taken a look at privacy and security concerns. Today, we're going to take a deeper dive on AI with the one and only Amber Mack. Amber is an entrepreneur, best-selling author, award-winning podcast host, blogger, keynote speaker, and TV radio host. She started her career during the dot-com boom in San Francisco and has been at the forefront of reporting on and participating in digital innovation ever since. She is exactly the voice of reason we need right now. Welcome to What She Said, Amber. Thanks for having me on. So we've been, we've been talking a lot about chat GPT, but AI uh, on its own has been in our lives for some time now. So what are some ways that AI is being used daily that may surprise people?
6: It's a really good question. I think for most people, they've probably heard of artificial intelligence. I mean, it was a term that was coined decades ago, but they probably don't realize is that they use it on an almost daily basis, even if they're not aware. So a great example is if you use any type of voice assistant in your phone, like Siri, or maybe use Google Assistant, that is powered by artificial intelligence. So basically once the microphone is turned on, the technology within that device is able to understand what you're saying and then return audio to you if you're asking questions as one example. So there are plenty of different touch points with artificial intelligence, much of them really in the background, and it's gonna have a huge impact on our lives in 2023.
0: Yeah, it's funny that you say, you know, Siri and Google, even I'm listening to what you're saying thinking, I don't know what I was thinking, but I don't think I equated it to AI. I don't know why. It's like that there's a little person in the speaker <laughs> waiting for us to talk. But I wasn't actually even thinking about that. So what are some of the jobs then that we should be preparing for? Because, you know, we were talking, I remember saying to my kids, you need to learn coding, you need to learn coding. Well, recently, I learned that the code can now write itself with AI.
6: It really is a rapidly changing world. And I think all of us, you know, me as a professional, but also as a parent, every day, I'm concerned about the future, the future of work. We know that many jobs will be automated or partially automated in the future. In fact, the World Economic Forum just came out with some interesting numbers that by 2025, about 50% of jobs will, in fact, be affected by artificial intelligence. So What we know there is that there is this idea of kind of a human and machine partnership. So I'll give you an example, customer service. So now when you call your bank and you speak to a human, even if you're on hold for many, many minutes, That's a normal interaction. It's fair to say within customer service in the future that much of that could be automated so you're talking to a voice assistant. We see that with chatbots online when you're chatting with your bank or any type of travel booking site. So more and more, there are specific jobs that will be impacted by artificial intelligence like customer service. Data input. Much of that could be managed by artificial intelligence. When we think about all different types of jobs, you can see how automation can protect, potentially affect that job and have an impact on individuals. I think that really is a conversation we're not having enough is that, yes, this technology can be great to automate parts of your work that were tedious, and maybe it can, in some cases, do it better. But what about actual people who have livelihoods and, and careers? How do they keep up?
0: Yeah, you know, you're saying things like customer service and and chatbots and things like that, which I think we've all sort of come to expect, you know, writing, these jobs could easily be replaced by AI. But there are things I'm seeing that I don't think we anticipated. For example, you know, Boston Dynamics, there was this video that went viral of uh, a robot doing construction
6: work. So are there careers
0: like that that you think will be impacted that will surprise
6: people? I think people will be surprised you know, when we think about robots in the future, we're already seeing robots in manufacturing, and we're seeing them in construction. Many times, they're used to do jobs that potentially could be dangerous to humans. So, I think all of us can support the introduction of these machines and robots into those industries, knowing that hey, if you have a suspension bridge, and we know it's safer for a robot to go out and do an engineering survey of that bridge to see if it's safe, and that potentially, you know, means that someone is less at risk. We We know that robots make sense in that scenario. But what we can't really plan for, and I think this is where things become more complicated, is that I believe that almost every industry will be impacted by artificial intelligence in ways that we can never imagine. And that may just mean that you use AI in your daily job. But if you don't understand how to use technology in the first place, these digital skills are very, very hard to acquire, especially if you're mid-career as one example.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, I don't know that we're prepared for that. So we're gonna take a quick commercial break and then we're gonna come back and talk about, you know, how to prepare for it and if we're prepared at all. So we'll be right back after this commercial break with Amber Mac.
1: I'll see you in a couple.
2: More with Candace Sampson and What She Said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Okay,
5: we're
0: back with Amber. Amber, let's talk about how prepared we are as a nation for these advancements. Do you think Canada will be a leader
6: in this area? I feel like this is a question that keeps me up every night (laughs) because (laughs) one of the things (laughs) that we talk a lot about in Canada is innovation. You know, we are always pushing to be a more innovative country. When we talk about the introduction of artificial intelligence and businesses that are powered by AI or even... AI technology development, we know that there's a lot of money and resources being put into those different companies and organizations. So when it comes to supporting AI research and development, I think Canada definitely can hold its own to other countries. Our government is very strong especially federally in terms of investment in artificial intelligence. But what worries me is that many of these businesses who are out there will thrive and succeed because of that investment. Uh, But that's not the majority of Canadians, right? And so this is the thing we all have to grapple with is, you know, yes, you know, it's great that these technology founders, you know, are getting millions of dollars in investment money, and they're going to sell their software all over the world, we should be very proud. But the everyday person doesn't necessarily have a touch point with those companies. And to me, that feels like the piece that is truly missing. Yeah,
0: because there's an opportunity here, again, for that divide to become wider between, you know, the, you know, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer sort of thing. Because if a company can take their money and invest in AI and lay off a bunch of workers, that company will benefit, but the workers obviously will not. And then where do they go?
6: Exactly. I mean, when we started this conversation, we spoke about ChatGPT. Many people may have seen the headline that Microsoft has invested billions, yes, that's with a B, billions of dollars in OpenAI, which is the company that oversees ChatGPT. Around the same time of that announcement of the investment of billions of dollars, Microsoft also announced that they were laying off about 10,000 or more workers. I don't know if you know that's directly connected. Obviously, you know, one thing is an investment. The other is just recognizing that potentially they don't need some of those people anymore. But I think all of us who have some basic understanding of AI and the future of work sort of understand where Microsoft, as one example, is investing, right? They're investing in artificial intelligence. They realize that that's the future. They realize that 2023 is the year of AI. So what ends up happening is that they're developing technology You're right, that could potentially replace (laughs) the workers that they've employed for so long. It may take years for that to happen, but I think we're going to see it all across the country and examples of it over the years to come.
0: How critical is it then that our institutions are responding quickly to AI? I mean... Is this, are we like in sort of 911 emergency, get on on this? Because, you know, Kat Kat Code joined me from Binary Tat last week, and she mentioned how AI has human biases in it that can be harmful. And so are we being responsive enough to those things when it comes to AI?
6: I really don't think that we are being responsive enough. And... I've been involved in panels and keynotes and conversations, again, around bias in artificial intelligence, around conversations about investment in AI, AI adoption. These are all really meaty, important subjects. But the one conversation I think that hasn't been addressed is the skills gap that does exist. And I don't think this is a gap that exists just because of artificial intelligence. It's all types of technology. We are in sort of an age of technology, and there are so many people who don't have those skills to be able to succeed in a world that is driven by technology. So yes, you can put your kids into coding. But at the end of the day, it's not like we just need coders in the tech world. We also need analysts. We also need marketers. We need communications people. So there's been this emphasis on coding, and it's not necessarily attracting the majority of this next generation. So what really worries me is that we do not have a generation growing up that is as digitally literate as we need. And certainly when you look at those people who've been in their careers for a long time, there is no place for them to go to acquire those skills. What do you see that's positive in this? Where are the opportunities for people? Because there's people right now who are
0: freaking out. (laughs) I don't blame them. This is a lot to absorb for us. So what would you say to people to sort of calm their fears? And what do you think they should be focusing on as we move forward now in 2023 with all of these advancements?
6: Well, I think really what we need is almost a national strategy to be able to provide training to individuals who want to be able to upskill and when i say upskill what i mean is basically just improve the skills that they have and it's available to people of all ages it is fair to say that there potentially are people who've had jobs for decades that don't even know that their job is going to be replaced by ai they have no idea like right now they're at work and they have no clue what's happening this is a reality of these modern days and so to me it feels like yes continue to invest in in innovation, continue to, you know, pump up the big tech companies that exist in Canada, we should all be very proud. But where's that human first approach to this problem? And I really don't see us coming to the table with a good solution. But whatever it is, and whatever it could be has to be grounded in this idea of skills and training.
0: Okay, Amber, I want to have you back many, many times this year because I just think this is going to move very quickly. But in the meantime, people should be following you, obviously, on your website and your podcast, your radio show, wherever you are. So where can they find you?
6: I am super easy to find, AmberMac.com. I do a newsletter every Tuesday. It's totally free, no strings attached. At AmberMac.com/newsletter, and I myself am, you know, trying to figure out how to help people on this journey. And I'm also one of those people who's a, a constant learner. And so I, I hope people can sign up for my newsletter and just, you know, go out there and find the support that they're going to need to survive these challenging times. All right, thanks so much, Amber. We'll have you back soon. Thanks so much.
0: That's it for What She Said this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. You can also catch me on TikTok at Candace Said. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to catch past episodes and extended podcasts. I'll be back next week with another What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Not with here,
5: I'll
1: see you in a couple.